Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Well, welcome to a special edition of the Dividend Cafe podcast. And when I say special, it's special for a number of reasons. First of all, the market is getting pummeled and we want to talk about why uh, we're going to be doing a kind of extensive unpacking of the newest escalation in this seemingly unending trade war between the United States and China. So we're going to dig deep into all things trade war, currency, tariffs, and even where that might impact Fed and earnings and some other kind of collateral conversations from that. But the other reason it's a special podcast, it's the first of what we hope will be many with our investment committee kind of doing this together. And so uh, you obviously are used to me doing a weekly Dividend Cafe podcast. That's not going to stop. I, on certain occasions, enjoy doing kind of special topical ones. I, you know, like every time there's a trade war escalation, it seems, we've done this. And we have one in the works right now around the election and, and a, a number of different things. So we want to do more and more of this. But it's important that you get the full arsenal of Bonson Group Intellectual Capital. And we, uh, sitting here today, are 80% of our investment committee. Robert Graham is out of town in client meetings, and so he's not joining us today. Uh, Robert is one of the CFAs in our group and um, will certainly be joining here one of our future podcasts. Let me uh, quickly just tee up who's with me here, and then we'll start talking amongst ourselves uh, sitting on my left is our newest member of the investment committee and one of the newest members here at the Bonson Group. He joined as our director of equity research uh, just recently here. I guess it's been about a couple months now, Julian. So uh, welcome to the Dividend Cafe podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it should be kind of fun. I, um, I'm hoping to spring some surprises on these guys, but we we talk about this stuff so much, I don't think anything will shock them, but perhaps their answers will shock me and therefore shock you, the listeners. Uh, over across from me, Brian Seitel, longtime partner at the Bonson Group. Brian, how you doing? Good, good. Good. Thank you. And then Dea Pranas, who has uh, been our managing director in the investment solutions group for quite some time. Dea, how are you? I'm just ready to do this. Now, we did a podcast together, uh, I think by, by remote once, right? About a year and a half ago. I think I interviewed you from New York, or we just sort of chatted a yeah, little bit. Yeah, just sort of chat. It started off, uh, it, it, I didn't really get my footing at first. I thought it was going to be like no, an interview. No, you were pretty bad. Kind of it was pretty bad. <laughs> and then it, got, it morphed into a bit of discussion, which we're hoping to do here today. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it was good. It was good. I think uh, all of the 17 listeners really got yeah, out, yeah. out of it. And then and then even not counting your family, even the other 10. It was yeah, good. Yeah. And there's 20 that work here at the Bonson Group. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which three didn't listen to it? Um, okay, so listen, this is, this is kind of interesting. It's disappointing as we... As you guys know, we were going to talk about earnings season today, and we're 80% plus into earnings season. For us, I think our only three remaining companies still to report uh, last quarter's results are Cisco, Walmart, and Steelcase in that order. So we've mostly gone through all of ours, and we're all kind of pumped up to sit and talk about the highlights and lowlights of earnings season, what we got out of it, what it looks like for the whole market, and, and our own portfolio positioning. But really, it seems somewhat disingenuous to go into some of that stuff based on the events of the last, let's call it, 96 hours. So by recap, the Fed met Wednesday. They cut rates quarter point as expected. His press conference was normal Federal Reserve incoherence in one ear, out the other, one side of the mouth, all the cliches you could think of, just stuff, I don't know, the market knew how to digest it, but more or less what they said was, uh, yeah, we're data dependent, we think we might do another quarter point, but we might not, and market didn't really like it, it went way down, then it kind of went a little down, but then by Thursday, that was sort of moot. We actually rallied back 300 points 
mm-hmm. on Thursday. So we're down 300 Wednesday at the end of the day. Rallied back all 300 of it. And then uh, this, uh, this guy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue starts <laughs> tweeting. And President Trump's tweet was something to the effect of, we're going to go ahead now and implement a 10% uh, additional tariff on $300 billion of Chinese goods. China uh, exports about $500 billion to us now. We already have tariffs on about $200 billion. So essentially he was saying this is the rest. Like we're going forward, some tariff on everything. Uh, we'll start at 10%, see how things go, and so forth. Market fell a lot, uh, went from up 300 to down 300 fell a lot Friday. And as we're sitting here talking right now, uh, market's down 550 points. So from high level, Dow was, what did it hit, 27,400? Sounds right. So we're 259-ish right now. So you're, you're either down 1,400 points from the high or 1,000 points plus change from where we were on Thursday, depending on how you look at it. Either way, it's a pretty, pretty significant move. So that's a little recap of what's happened since Wednesday that I kind of wanted to drive. Um, I don't know, Julian, what do you think? What's the pattern here? What are you, what are you, what are you taking out of this recent chain of events? Well, I guess what, I think what's quite interesting is like uh, looking at all the earnings, um, um, I think, you know, we, if the companies we own, they're quite a good reflection of the overall S&P 500. And uh, if you look at the earnings, they, you know, most of the companies have done very well, actually. Uh, they beat earnings, uh, they beat on revenue. Uh, and then I guess you see quite a lot of difference between the one that are quite exposed to international markets and the one that are more U.S. centric. Um, so I think this uh, actually, if you get some stats from uh, that were done by um, by uh, FactSet, you see that uh, you know basically earnings are down uh, over year uh, year over year about one percent. But for the companies that have you know 50 percent of revenue outside of the U.S. Uh, the blended earnings decline is 11%. While for the S&P, the one that have uh, you know majority of the revenue in the U.S., the blended earnings grows was four and a, four and a half percent. So basically, the U.S. is doing fine. The U.S. consumer is doing fine. But do you think do you think that has anything to do with the trade war? Well, uh, yes, I think so. I think it's trade and currencies. Clearly, they're all talking about that. So you see, the the companies are more exposed to international markets, or to you know like the the semis, or you know that are. The other the, the agri- uh, agriculture industry that are impacted by you know what's happening with China they, they you know on the calls uh, they talk about currencies they talk about trade and and the one that are not like you know McDonald's are not so exposed or PG they find they're doing okay so I think clearly you see you see trade war impacting international companies but see I guess what's kind of frustrating is that the earnings results we just got aren't going to be obviously impact, uh, impacted at all by the most recent iteration here, this brand new escalation. So they reflect kind of the last quarter's tensions that we're in, and now you got this sort of new round of it. And I wonder, Brian, if you could talk a little about this pattern. Julian had sent this uh, illustration last week, and I'm going to put it in Dividend Cafe mm-hmm. this week. Uh, but it really, it, it's somewhat comical, and yet it actually really isn't, because it's pretty much precise, I think, economically, that the pattern of... Okay, we, we announce big bluster around trade, market drops, then we say things are looking better, market rallies, nothing changes at all. Yeah. And we've gone through this cycle a little bit. Our, my, my concern is that that's been the pattern in the market, and P.E. ratios have dropped when there's an escalation trade war. Then they come back around when stuff doesn't really happen or it looks like the world's not ending yet. But I'm not sure that the underlying fundamentals of these companies are not actually taking on real deterioration. I think they eventually will. I, I you know, um, you know, Julian kind of recapped the the earnings season. It went well. I think in the light of um, some pretty robust dollar strength, 
and a lot of these companies, you know, 50, 60% of, of revenues come from overseas. I think it was actually impressive to see um, earnings do as well as, as they, they did in, in light of that. And I would suspect that that continues. I think the last time China had a seven to one dollar ratio with the yuan was 11 years ago. So this is going to be new and it'll come out in the next earnings report. Um, we did have something similar in 2015. Um, and I was looking at that this morning and just trying to correlate kind of what went on then with uh, China manipulating currency, uh, devaluing currency at that point, um, and then dealing with sort of capital outflows out of the country. And that was sort of the... And when? And that was like, I think it was August of 15, yeah, if I remember. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, And we had about a 10% correction in markets, maybe a little less, something like that. We're a five already. We're down 5%, I mean, the last week or so. Um, so I just think it's going to be a process, and we'll work through it. Um, but it's yet to be seen how it affects earnings and companies and how they deal with it. I suspect that they'll be okay. I think fundamentals are pretty are pretty sound uh, at this at this point. Um, the the one thing I would say too is that I think the sell off today. Um, I mean, it, it's just a day, and it's a down day, obviously, because of the news. But I think it has to do a little bit more with just the rate of change of the yuan versus the dollar. Um, it's actually the second most second largest um, decrease in, in the currency ever the last time was 2015. So I think that just kind of spooks market. Anytime you get a big change like that that fast overnight, basically, you get markets that kind of react accordingly. Day, are you up for a geopolitical angle on this? Can I throw something? Sure, sure. What about Hong Kong? I mean, what does Hong Kong fit into this? You, you, you I heard this morning some uh, analysts make a comment um, real early Julian, no offense, they say they're real used to this in France. You can have mm-hmm. protests in France frequently. It's part of the social fabric of the country. Italy, Hong Kong, they don't do this. you know. And, and this thing looks to me like it's going somewhere worse than people maybe thought. And so I just wonder, is part of it the combination of events, this sort of revolt taking place in Hong Kong, they don't know how China's going to respond. U.S. is kind of ambiguous about their play into it. Combined with China's deteriorating efforts in currency, combined with trade war, I think it, I think it acts as a bit of a corroborative signal to a, a bit of distrust with China in the geopolitical landscape. I think uh, I think China has has not really played ball in a lot of different areas, and it's one of the reasons why this trade war is happening. I think it's I think it's all correlated. As far as how things affect earnings, um, yeah, I agree with what you said that a lot of this kind of manifested after Q2. And when I when I went through the earnings reports, one of the things that surprised me is that I didn't hear many companies talk about uh, China as a big risk. I, th- I think I heard uh, maybe Jamie Dimon and a couple other of the, fi- the financial CEOs say that, look, this is a big short-term risk. Uh, but other than that, we don't see many short-term risks. So I, I think that if this thing, this thing drags on, uh, you know, any, any sort of companies that have supply chains uh, that run through China or have uh, a large exposure to the Chinese consumer will be substantially affected. I'm actually, uh, as far as portfolio decisions and where to add and what to buy and maybe what to sell, I think it's going to be interesting going forward. Ideally, we would like to, I think we would like to add to companies where they don't have that kind of uh, uh, exposure that we talked about to different tariffs or tsunami tariffs or uh, you know on the supply side of things where companies uh, that if this thing gets goes nuclear and maybe this tips the US into a recession companies that we wouldn't mind holding through a recession who don't have that kind of exposure um, and, and I'm looking across all our companies like Julian said 
you know, this is a pretty good reflection of the S&P. And, um, you know, most of these companies do have that exposure. Some of them are more U.S.-centric. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint. But what do you guys think about where to add if, the, well, if see, this I, really sells off? I, my, I have kind of a, a different angle than just yeah. looking at the direct hit. Like you talk about companies with exposure to Chinese consumer and companies that are directly involved in the supply chain. Those would be like the most obviously connected to the trade war. But but my whole thesis and what we've talked about for so long is a little longer term than, than where like so if the whole market is down two and a half percent, you're looking at companies that are only down two versus companies that are down three and a half and it blends to two and a half. I mean that's kind of interesting in the shorter term period. But I guess what I'm going to is the industrial production. So the consumer in the US is somewhat insulated for now. Chinese consumers getting whacked. Okay. But is this really going to happen without deteriorating business investment? I, I find it impossible to believe that if this is the path we're going to stay on, that you will not see that reversal of capital expenditures that has been necessary for extending the U.S. rally. And ultimately, I think we're now at the point of being an inning or two away from this having to end if they cannot generate a resolution. So I'm taking a more macro perspective as opposed to the direct micro, you know, impact in company portfolio holdings. What say you, Julian? Yeah, no, I'm like nodding, thinking, I agree. I mean, I'm worried about uh, the overall impact of, uh, of this trade war and, uh, um, you know, uh, FX war because um, the impact it has on, on business and confidence and we haven't seen translate into any impact on the job market, but ultimately when corporates will stop uh, investing in CapEx and hiring, you're going to start seeing the jobless uh, you know, uh, numbers claims uh, deteriorating, and then that could start impacting the consumer. And so that's let, let, me, let, me make, let me reverse engineer that. Mm -hmm. Our thesis bullishly has been capital expense, business confidence leads mm -hmm. to business investment, business investment leads to productivity, productivity leads to job growth, exactly. economic growth. So if, if the opposite takes place, declining business confidence leads to declining business investment which eventually then leads to yeah. suffering productivity which then surfaces itself in job loss a, and that's AKA where we recession. are that's where we are and we could go both ways i guess we are at the point where we could you know if yeah. business confidence comes back and this thread wise just you know away goes away again in a few weeks we'll be fine and um, but if it goes on like that for six months i think you could compare that to like uh, what's happening with the uk and brexit you know, uh, I think the worst thing that's uh, that is happening there is the fact that there's no decision one way or another. It's worse than mm -hmm. doing a Brexit or doing no Brexit. It's just delaying, delaying a decision. And if you keep, if you do the same with trade war and, uh, and China, I think that's the worst that that could uh, that could happen to the economy. Yeah, having no decision, you know, having this uh, lingering for years. Yeah, I think all of those things speak to you know weaker fundamental growth. And all of those things speak to lower interest rates, and rates are already negative for $14 trillion of sovereign debt across the world. And, you know, we've cut rates last week. Um, I think all of that stuff, as it starts to kind of permeate through earnings, and we actually get fundamental reasons to cut rates rather than sort of a quote-unquote insurance cut, I think it speaks to lower interest rates and um, and and things like mm. that too. So, so I thought trade wars were inflationary. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the yield curve and where interest rates are and are heading is telling you that it's the opposite. Personally, yeah. that's amazing. Well, you're exactly right, Brian. And this is a discussion we've had a lot. Over, I, I believe it's a philosophical tenet for us. 
but it's something a lot of people in capital markets are missing. The expectation is, oh, there's a trade war, there's more tariffs, it raises prices, that's inflationary, and then for people to afford it, employers have to raise wages for people to afford the higher price level in the economy. No, it suppresses demand, right. drives yields lower, and it speaks to low growth, and the deflationary impact of the trade war is what I think you're seeing in the bond market right now. Yeah, and vol you know, heightened volatility like that does depress demand, totally. I think, and that, that's, that's, the, that's the big deal. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think uh, jump in. What yeah, no, I was just gonna say if there's one thing that uh, Donald Trump achieved, and you know, uh, after the weight cut, he was disappointed. He was only one, and clearly one more than that. And the implied probability right after was 50 percent chance on one cut by you know in September. So he really managed to lower expectations. You know, the, the Fed basically their their okay, I guess comments change the implied expectation and a week later it's amazing if you look today the implied probability of a cut in September is now 100% uh, it's 80% of one cut and now even 20% of two so what, what Julie means by implied expectation because we talk about a lot with different yeah. cafe is the Fed funds futures market so you just kind of look at futures how they're pricing it and, and our term would be implied expectation as you're, as you're referring yeah. to it's at 100% yeah. So, yeah. so so is Trump happy? He's going to get his uh, second rake. Yeah, within a within a week, he managed to get another. You know, I guess the meetings on is still forty five days uh, away, so who knows what happens. But uh, at the moment, you know, the market is saying we need another one or two cut by September. Yeah. I will I will go on record as saying I vehemently repudiate the conspiracy theory that this is all Trump playing chess with the Fed, that he's purposely escalating trade war to trick them into. Lowering rates. I, I get why some people want to think that, but that may be in the top five stupidest things I've ever heard in my life, actually. Yeah. Then I, I, I should tell you the other four sometime because yeah. they're really dumb. Then I would want to ask you because, like, it's. I'm trying to understand what is he trying to achieve, and you're the best place to know. I mean, like, yeah. being a foreigner, I think, like, he, he must have an agenda. To, you know, he's not stupid. He's not doing this, you know, uh, just to get the Fed to. No, so there's, I mean, look, on the political handicapping of this all, you. you there are people that just loathe Donald Trump so much that they can only interpret it in the worst possible lens. And there's people that are the exact polar opposite. They just have to assume he's playing this masterful fourth dimensional chess. I, I think what we do well is try to offer a little more sober analysis of it. And, and I'm quite confident in my assessment of what he is doing. That doesn't mean I agree with it because I, I really don't. But, but I think that what he believes is that this is impacting China's economy worse than ours. Therefore, he has an upper hand. And when he speaks to his base, the votes he most needs in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, they're largely not coastal people with a lot of stocks in their portfolio. And he says, I can take on a little heat with this because I'm standing up to China. That's good for my base. Ultimately, China's going to come around. I'm going to get a deal. It's all, all going to work. Now, I think he's wrong. And, and I and I don't think that any president. This is not about President Trump. I don't think any president can get reelected when the stock market's collapsing. Mm -hmm. and I wrote an article about this recently. He got a hundred years of precedent. It mm -hmm. just really doesn't happen. But in this case, the market's still up. The I've said this several times. The best thing that could have happened to end this trade war sooner is if the market had just taken its medicine worse last year. But that cycle that we've talked about has kept, has repeated itself over and over. The market drops in fear of a trade war, and it comes rallying back around. Do you remember the Mexico thing a couple months ago? Yeah, yeah. It, and this time, this time may be a little different in the sense that uh, now it's it's the likelihood is a lot higher that this whole thing go nuclear. So I'm not sure what Trump, what kind of rhetoric he could come out with that might appease markets. 
I think this thing is in later innings now, and uh, who knows how how this thing could unravel. I think that Trump actually thought that China would back down by now or give him some hint that they were backing down, and uh, it, it they absolutely have not done so, and they've gone the other way. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Trump's going to dig his heels in or not, but it's it'll be uh, – I, I know the market's watching. What about this scenario? Let's say – we get trade war escalations. We get uh, some slower fundamental growth. We get lower interest rates in the United States and across the world. Um, then we have something like uh, Trump doing something along the lines of indexing capital gains for inflation, which would be stimulative from a capital expenditure standpoint in the country, I think. And then also you get sort of a deal that ends up getting getting done right right around the election. Then it gets reelected. Where do you think markets would be? If we're 2,900 on S&P now, where would they be then? Yeah, in that scenario, markets would, would be a lot higher, and, and a lot of it depends on who Trump is running against and what the posture that opponent ends up taking. And so that's one of my thesis. Like I have a lot of people saying, hey, what are we going to do with our portfolio if Elizabeth Warren gets elected? And, and I'm going to save that conversation because that's something we're going to be talking about a lot in the months ahead. A lot of it's going to depend on who the nominee is and how they run their own rhetoric, not in the primary assume they're all going to pretend that they're Karl Marx through the primary. But in the general election, if the candidate's Joe Biden, is he going to run on an anti-market message? I don't really, yeah. I don't really think so. But I think that um, that capital gains issue brought up, to give listeners context, there is a belief for some in the Treasury Department that they have the discretion without going to Congress to interpret the capital gain rules as such that they can uh, affect them at IRS um, implementation level with an indexing to inflation. So if somebody bought something for $100 30 years ago, it's now $200, but $50 of that $100 gain is considered part of inflation, they would only have to pay capital gain taxes on 50 bucks, not the whole 100 the problem with that is that the Treasury Department could implement it or announce it, but it will go to court immediately. Hmm. And so there's really no scenario that I believe that that could be affected into law in time for it to have an impact on the election. Hmm. Um, my understanding is Attorney General Barr disagrees with that assessment. The Justice Department does not believe the Treasury has the authority to do that. It would be overwhelmingly stimulative. Uh, uh, it would be really interesting, um, and it would be a more ethical uh, I think execution of the capital gain intent. I don't think people should be paying taxes on gains that were not in fact gains, but Agreed. were, you know. <laughs> so, so that uh, that could be an offset. But this is the let's talk about that whole idea of the offset. Like, we got let's call 100 billion of stimulus out of the tax cuts year one, and now we've had 60 billion taken out from the trade war. So, so people, what you're doing, you know, to me, I, I'm saying let, let's say that's going to be worth 50 billion of stimulus. It's going to offset something else. Well, what, why do we have to have things offsetting it? Let's just get pro-growth policy to play out and let this economy find some legs because the 2 to 2.5% two GDP growth is not what we signed up for. He needs 25 to 3.5% base case. Yeah, and so I I think that the trade war is the only thing I can point to that is suppressing it right now. And you think that he'll uh, he he'll go back he'll, he'll, as far as uh, as far as the tariffs and all that. You think he'll he'll go ahead and put up the white flag? Well, well, yeah. that, see that that's the question. Is um, here's what I okay. Let's start with what I don't think he will do. Okay, it, but one of the like more reasonable policy scenarios in terms of it being serious but absolutely catastrophic. Is the Steve Bannon, Kyle Bass camp, a lot of, I think Pete Navarro and his own administration, it's an awful idea. So I, when I say serious, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm uh, complimenting it. 
But but there is a school of thought that says, sorry, this really is multi-generational. This is hemispheric power. We're going to have to take a significant short-term lump to go do something that's best for the country for 50 years. That's generally the way you talk in a second term, not a first term. And my impression of President Trump is that he cares about his legacy and how people talk about him. So I don't really believe that there is a sense in which President Trump could go a sort of kamikaze route, like I'll blow up my own campaign and re-election chances, but gosh darn it, I'm going to you know save this U.S. thing with China for 50 years. So, so, but that is something that continues to be discussed, and there are voices in his ear that are very seriously saying, "Let the Dow drop twenty percent, but let's make clear to China that we're going to utterly redefine the nature of the economic relationship between our two countries." Then you say, "What does Trump think?" And all I can do is go off of past precedent. And I've written about this for over a year now. You guys have seen it. It was so easy with steel and aluminum to pretend he got a big victory. He kind of pump faked with Mexico and six days later was saying, okay, they're coming around and now they're going to stop, you know, Guatemalans from coming in and everything. The uh, European auto tariffs, he pump faked around. There, nothing has actually really been serious and had to get to the point of implementation. The soybean thing has hurt farmers. The washing machine thing hurt Peoria, Illinois or whatever. But ultimately... The systemic stuff has not actually hit the fan yet, and I really don't know how it doesn't at this point, other than in the next month, him doing another Mexico thing where he says, okay, China, I just got the phone with President Xi. They're buying a bunch of agricultural stuff. They faxed me the purchase order, a lot of soybeans. This is the greatest soybean order ever. Uh, we're, we're not going to do the 10% because it's supposed to kick in September 1, right? Yep. Yeah. So he could do that. Now, look. Who in the world will take it seriously if he does that again? I, I, I mean, come on. It wouldn't it be wouldn't, the first time. It would be the fourth time. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I, I would think at that point it would really weaken the hand of the man who wrote the art of the deal. Yeah. So yeah. he has to look strong. He's got to try yeah, but to the, save the whole face idea of the trade war yeah. makes doesn't make a lot of sense. No, anyway. I mean, it's not going to bring back these jobs to the U.S. They're going to go from China to Vietnam, maybe. But but this is part back. of the problem, Joy, for us as investors is that communication. You can listen to President Trump on one day say, we're doing this to bring jobs back. And on another day, you can say, we're not going to let them steal our intellectual property anymore. And on a different day, it's more like when Bannon talks, it's a bit more high level and this sort of uh, uh, hemispheric conflict. Hmm. But there, we have, and then other days, President Trump has famously said, trade wars are just so easy to win. And we're making so much money off of China. And he's banking on the fact that the people he's speaking to don't know that that's utterly false. But my point is, how do we address what the reasoning is, his motives, and our expectation of outcome when the messaging has been all over the map? The, the, I think what you have to assume is that it's really about intellectual property, that there aren't people who actually believe that these jobs are coming back to Ohio. I th yeah, I think so, too. It's really about the intellectual property in China playing ball with the West. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, for Trump to save face, he has to get at least – one concession out of China. Maybe it'll be those agricultural orders, like you said. Uh, I mean, I, I doubt that he will be able to come out with just some fluff and and everybody can pretend it's okay and then you know markets will rally again. But why would China give him the benefit of a cosmetic victory? 
Well, they won't give him a victory, but he will spin it as a victory. They'll give him nothing, but he will spin it as right, a victory exactly. somehow. Yeah, it'll be overwhelming. Fundamentally, be in their uh, in their favor, in their interests, but he can spin it as a victory. Um, so, so I yeah I, I and but I do feel that there is something genuine that Trump feels about China raping us, as he said over and over again, his own words. I think there's also a part of him that is will feel that if he doesn't get this deal, that he's not the strong man or something. So. I don't know what other kind of psychological stuff's going on there, but I do, I do think this does matter to him, and he does want to win it. Whether or not he'll just kind of throw up the white flag and uh, admit defeat, oh, oh, that I don't think will happen. But uh, as Julian said, spin any sort of uh, concession into a victory, I, I think is more likely. But the know. U.S. economy is doing so well, you will know, like why you want to break the engine, you know, like uh, consumer is doing well. There's no unemployment, growth is better than anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're not, you know, you go after China complain because of the trade imbalances, but you yeah, can, why, you know, the, why, why, the like world can take it. The world wants the U.S. dollar anyway, so well, it's kind of strange. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, the last the last increase of 10% in the last $300 billion is basically consumer goods. And so I think it was, you know, he was holding out on, on doing that, knowing that prices would go up for consumers in the United States and obviously slow, slow the economy. And I think he sort of showed... Um, you know, this week that he's sort of willing to quote unquote shoot the hostage t- type of thing to get what he wants, you know, to get it done. And to David's point, I mean, I think. Do you think uh, he is? I mean, you're right. He's yeah. posturing that way. Do you think he really is willing uh, to shoot the hostage? Th- that was my next my, I my, think my there's next a small point probability. I, I don't know, and I hope not. Um, Even with the soybean I, thing with the I, farmers, they did those stupid bailouts. Yeah. So, on one hand, he let the farmers get hit with $10 billion of suffrage to their soybean orders, and then he did the kind of bailout back channel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're China, I mean, yeah, what's the motivation to give him anything before the election? I don't think there's a whole lot, really. It would have to be him. Well, the motivation is if you think he's going to get reelected. Yeah, so that's that's the that's the tension point. I, I wish the election was this November. Then I would know the market will be much higher than it is. But we well, have another year, so I would bet you in a year we're higher than we are. But he has plenty of time to let the market, uh, you know, puke twenty percent and and this play out and get these two three Fed cuts and then you know um, change. You know, I guess. Uh, change his rhetoric on China and, and have a strong market for the election day. And that's, that yeah. was my comment earlier. That's I mean, I could see that actually playing out. We, we have you, a lot we, of time, unfortunately. Yeah. In the meantime, it's, it could be well at all. And, yeah. and then really take the fight to China during his second term? Well, there's a lot he could do in a second term he can't do in a first term. But yeah. this is sort of the problem is I've long thought China had more leverage from the political side. They don't have to run re-election. Um, the thing I was unaware of that is far is adding a lot more to my thinking is we have a lot of clients that have business interests in China. They're telling me when they're over there meeting with their manufacturers, when they're, uh, you know, the, the, the optics on the ground, the Chinese people do not want Xi to capitulate to U.S. And his quote unquote board of directors are kind of equivalent to a cabinet. They are adamant that China, that to them this is a, a thing of national pride. And I would have thought that the angle was, nah, he doesn't have to be reelected, so he doesn't care. It's not just that he doesn't have to be reelected, doesn't care. He does care the other way, like that he that he has to maintain a strong posture as well, not for reelection, but from a but his people are not asking him to go get this resolved. That the Chinese people want this fight with the US. That they have a sort of 75-year history of believing that they've been mistreated on the global stage. So, so hmm. that, that, that's not going to end well if, if that's in fact the case. But the issue of leverage politically, I really think the president's thinking, which is not totally irrational, has been 
hey, they would like a better deal with a new pre Democrat president later, but frankly, it looks like I probably can win. The other field looks a little questionable. Economy's good. So then China has to is motivated to get a better deal done now at risk that I end up winning re-election and they're in a, you know, a much less leveraged position. Hmm. The part that seems to me to be ignored, I emailed you guys about this morning, is does China have a self-fulfilling prophecy in this that they can impact the result of that election? In other words, can this thing get ugly enough that it hurts Trump and therefore hurts his chances for re-election, then gives China that better outcome later. You talk about foreign interference in an election. Sure, that's how, how, why. Uh, why? Uh, what? What keeps China from really messing around with the global economy if they think this thing is not going to get resolved? I, I think. It, I think at the end of the day, sure, the uh, communist regime in China doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, term elections. They they don't need to worry about getting reelected. But I think, uh, and I'm not so sure about a lot of the data that comes out of China. I feel like every time I'm listening to a Chinese official or a, somebody who's a, a CEO of a company in China, they're always under some influence from the communist regime. So I'm not, I don't know exactly how all the citizens in China feel, but I have to assume that if China is, uh, this thing's going to put China in some sort of recession, being at war uh, with the U.S., that it has to matter to the top brass at some point. Um, you know, I, and they're already starting off at the slowest economy they've had in 30 years, so it's not like they're starting off with in a great spot. And so I would agree with that. And I think as far as the people kind of not wanting a trade deal done just out of maybe spite or just to show strength in that, I, I can't speak to it, but I, agree, no. I would imagine that's true. But then in the day, you get supply chains that start moving out of China and going to Vietnam and other parts of the world, and I think that can happen in, in today's world pretty pretty fast. Then I think that that feeling of let's just show strength for the sake of doing that will go away, and you get fundamental deterioration further in the Chinese economy, and then and then you kind of have have that. I actually think in this whole thing, the U.S. really isn't a stronger place to negotiate other than the political side of it. Me which too. Makes yeah. things tough. Well said. I, yeah, so I the word, but see, I, I'm I, I also believe that there are. I don't know if the number is 300 million. It's more than that. Or if it's all the way up to 900 million, it's probably less than that. But there's let's call half a billion people in China that are not um, economically sensitive. They're not sitting there going sure. like, oh, I hope GDP growth doesn't right. drop from 6.2 to 4.7. There, 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 um, there are almost no people in the U.S. that are not GDP sensitive, either consciously or, sub or, or, or very fair. unaware. Now, as we sit here and talk, we're getting a real-time tweet from the President of the United States. How about us? Uh, yes, he wants to know that. <laughs> He's listening in. Said something about the Divin Cafe group, the Investment Committee, the Bonson group. Those guys know their stuff. I'll be calling them. Well said, well said. Oh, the things I could tell you. <laughs> um, based on historic currency manipulation by China, it's now even more obvious to everyone that Americans are not paying for the tariffs. They're being paid for compliments of China, and the U.S. is taking in tens of billions of dollars. China has always used currency manipulation to steal our businesses and factories, hurt our jobs, depress our workers' wages, and harm our farmers' prices. Well, not anymore. Um, it's a smart tweet um, as long as he doesn't mean any of it. Like, it's a smart tweet politically. That's got to be their narrative politically. There will be some legs to that story. Um, it is across the board. Every parenthetical phrase of it is inaccurate. But it's a politically potent message. Yeah. Yeah, it's the uh, us versus them, and you know, gets that nationalistic blood flowing. Yeah, appeal. Yeah, appeals to his base. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think he could. 
I, I mean, I, I don't know what the market would. I, I know that uh, you study the precedents as far as market drops and reelections. And I, what, do you think that if the market dropped another 15% from here, it's possible for him to get reelected or 10%? Where uh, is it in the summer of 2020? Like if it drops yes, 15% yeah. from here and rallies back 20%, that, that's different. If yeah. we're down 15% from here, from here in the summer of next year, then we are going to have a new president in the United mm, States. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and and a lot of people say, well, no, that the blue collar workers in Ohio don't care about Wall Street. That's see, that's just not what this is about. The stock market is both a chicken and egg in this. There's a cause and effect. The market is reflecting confidence, it's creating confidence, it is reflecting economic conditions, it has a sort of um wealth effect to it but also the iras 401ks there's that the main people that are going to switch this election look i don't really think those blue collar workers in the rust belt are going to turn on trump anyways i'm just taking for granted he has them i got some bad news there ain't that many of them mm. there's enough to flip the election against Hillary clinton by seventy thousand votes total in three states put together that's amazing so on the margin are, I think you have to look to the independent voters that maybe might be upper middle class, suburban, that are um, looking at their 401ks and saying, look, yeah. the, the, we, this is kind of the story. And I, I think most really, really big Trump advocates would say the same. They would say, okay, you have this sort of temperamental thing. A lot of people are tired of Twitter and the this and that. But then you have the strong economy. And i got to be honest, I, I, he's doing great for the economy. I'll put up with his antics to get the economy. How do you keep the economy narrative to offset this other stuff, the behavior that very few people like outside of his base, if the market has dropped 15%? I think it, it submarines the other narrative. Julian, what say you as the as the U.S. political uh, observer here? Uh, I guess there's one number we haven't talked about, and um, that's the tenure. And, you know, like the economy, I guess at the end of the day, you know, uh, we really should focus on earnings and, and valuations, right? And so valuation is based on relative valuation to, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the one number that matters, which is the 10-year U.S. government bond yield, which used to be at 3%. So when, you know, you can make 3% earning the U.S. government bond, it's less attractive to own equities, but if you can only make 1.7% like today, that, you know, that makes equities relatively cheaper. So, you know, as long as earnings, uh, you know, uh, can stay here, um, at the moment, you know, the expectation is that the S&P uh, uh, earnings are going to be flat this year. So that's why we kind of uh, stuck around this. But, uh, you know, S&P earnings are expected to grow again uh, next year. And if that's the case and you have the, the rates uh, lower, then you can see the, you know, the market, uh, you know, uh, so, so you're saying trading higher in, in 12 months, mm -hmm. much higher. So you're saying that even with a little bit of this, you know, tariffs, suppose it continues this escalation trade war, well, escalation. If, as long as earnings are not impacted, we're okay, I guess, because right. I mean, if earnings are doing fine and you have cheaper, you know, rates on environment, then you know that that should that push valuations up basically. Because are you going to make a return? You're going to make a return on earning government bonds, and you're going to make 1.8 percent today. Yes, stocks Corporates are, are going to have 50 bps extra, alone. maybe two two and a half on the, on the stocks. You make uh, you know on 17 times speed. I mean, it's three three and a half four percent yield, right? Equivalent. So the risk premium is actually compared to historical averages is is not that high. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think at the end of the day, so long as fundamentals are intact. 
lower interest rates, the lower risk-free rate of return should mean a little bit higher multiple in market and or supportive of 17x or whatever it's trading at now, 17.5 or so. I, I would agree with that. I think it's really just lower now when the fundamentals actually do start to show up, then what happens to that thesis. But I, I, I agree. I think as of, as of now, it's, it's rhetoric. It's um, kind of a trade cold war, kind of back and forth. And there's been tariffs and such. But as far as actually affecting earnings of J&J and companies that we own, I, I haven't seen it yet. In fact, actually on the calls with the last earnings report, they were uh, more positive than I would have assumed given the strength of the dollar. Hmm. Yeah, but see, our companies are, are, for the most part, a lot more insulated, okay, directly. So you're really talking about more of overall market multiple. And then within our holdings at some of our technology companies that have a big supply chain relevance out of China. And we do have several there that have been impacted in price last couple of days. But they don't tend to be sure. really monumental size holdings. Yeah. But, Brian, you've done this long time on an asset allocation front. Julian's bringing up the, the unattractiveness of a 10-year Treasury yield at 1.7%. Who could disagree? Do the 2.5% 10-year Treasury yield look very attractive? I would say no. No. Right now, people are going to be flabbergasted at how much money they've made in their bond portfolios. TL, yeah, I, I was mm -hmm. just looking at it this morning. TLT is mm -hmm. up 15% yeah. as of today. This is the 20-year proxy for the Treasury bond. I mean, it was up 15% last year. And spreads, it's not even just the peer bonds in the Treasuries and, of course, in the municipal market. Even corporate bonds investment grade, spreads have not widened much. Nope. There's been a little widening, They were, but that's off of an extraordinary tightening that mm -hmm. taken place earlier in the year. So let's bring this back to something more applicable to our clients, to investors at sure. large. Asset allocation lessons out of this. Would you be selling bonds at a 1.7 yield right now, Brian? I think I would be taking some, um, reallocating. I think, I think not the, trimming. Would you be eliminating? No, definitely mm. not. It's tough to really eliminate an asset class like that. I mean, it's there for stability, for safety. It's there for I men like we just said. I mean, it's it's year to date. You know, our bond portfolio. I'm not looking at the number, but I'm assuming it's up something like eight percent, seven percent, something like that. Mm. So it's done its job. Um, I think trimming and things always make sense from an asset allocation standpoint when you have valuations that get stretched. And I could argue that for the fixed income market. I do think that um, as far as where to go and where we're looking at from an asset allocation standpoint, it's really in that alternative sector where I think we can get um, you know, return that's more absolute based rather than, than relative, meaning that uh, yes, rates are low. Uh, stocks are, in my opinion, pretty close to fully valued at 17 or 18 times earnings. You've got trade war things, stuff like that. What's an investment that can make money with a lower amount of volatility based on all of those things? And I think alternatives uh, in that space are, are where we'd probably look towards. I know we've been discussing that already. So, Dale, we talked earlier that we think that a lot of these things playing out are deflationary threats, not inflationary. Bonds are pretty defensive here, right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think bonds are. Uh, we have them in the portfolio for that specific reason yeah. because it is a defensive asset class. And look, I, I, I you know, they're obviously bonds are less attractive today than they were, you know, eight months ago. But I have a hard time eliminating the portfolio, especially, you know, I, I who knows what rates are going to do. I don't know. Is this part of some sort of uh, lengthening cycle to uh, to lower rates. I, I don't know. And bond, bonds could. It was uh, Julian and I talked about it the other day. He heard some quote that said people are buying uh, equities for yield and bonds for price appreciation. You know? Well, and that's it's, that's yeah, been going on for a while now, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so. so so is uh, the ten year at one percent? Is that a complete impossibility? So, no. And I mean, look at you know, German boons are negative fifty three basis hmm. points. Uh, 
uh, UK gilts are 50 basis points, which is an all-time low, yeah. I think, f going back forever. Um, so is there room for the U.S. Treasury to go to 1%? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Julian, what do you think about this from an asset allocation lesson? There's volatility we're experiencing in the equity portfolio. Yeah. A I mean, lot of gains this year. You talk about the, the water we've taken on the last few days. Minuscule compared to the upside mm -hmm. equities have experienced. Even with this will sell-off, multiples are not cheap. And bonds have proven to be very defensive here. Is some modest allocation to fixed income with the deflationary hedge in mind, is that still appropriate? I think anything but cash, really. So uh, yeah. I guess if you look just at uh, Germany, Japan, you look like, you know, the... the Democracies with like aging uh, population uh, that have you know problem with uh, getting growth, uh, you know they they're ready to do very um, aggressive quantitative you know going negative interest rates buying the buying the, the the central bank by by the markets. So I guess if you look at that, you think maybe that's what's coming to the U.S. next. So I think it's very possible that the ten-year goes to one, goes even lower. Maybe the Fed that doesn't have the mandate today, but talk about buying the the equity market. So. I think to me that means you just stay long. Uh, you just want to stay long anything but cash, which yeah. is you know fixed income, uh, equities, alternatives. Probably not a, you know from a, if you want to be a bit more tactical, given what you know the performance of the markets. You know you go into alternative that's going to be more market neutral and just probably should do better in a high vo volatile environment. This is, but see this is really important. What you guys have said really reinforces such a big part of our philosophy. We asset allocate because we don't know exactly what will happen. So if the if the ten year reverses and at one seven and all of a sudden we close the week at two twenty five, how much higher equity prices? We probably made back that thousand points and then some. Yeah, because that means doing well, I guess. That's right. So you have this sort of zigs and zags, and and unless one wants to go all in on a call, and here's the problem with that, by the way. The call they would be making is a call that they could very well have been making at any number of other catalysts over the last 10 years and would have been wrong every single time. And so the right call has consistently been an allocation into fixed income. Perhaps you turn it down a little, perhaps you turn it up a little, and an allocation to equity in line with your own risk appetite, comfort level, volatility, overweighting and underweighting the securities, of course, that we actively manage around dividend growth. And then I think the alternative piece is, is important just from that absolute return objective that you talked about, Brian. I, I can't think of a more cliche lesson and a more applicable lesson than what's going on right now than a reinforcement of the merits of asset allocation. What say you, Dale? Absolutely. We want to uh, approach portfolio management from the risk side first. We want to prepare portfolios for a range of outcomes. It's not a stock approach. It's not a bond approach. It's not a cash approach. It's not an alternatives approach. A portfolio approach is needed. Um, so but don't our clients pay us to know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so with alternatives, uh, it was a big theme of ours coming in the year. We lightened up a little bit on fixed income. When in alternatives, we wanted to reduce some equity beta in the portfolio. I think it was the right thing to do. Took a bit more moderate posture uh, because just as we've been discussing here today, there is this outcome of melt up that could take place you know, frankly, the earnings recession has not really surfaced. Earnings growth has been strong enough to add a turn into the multiple of the market. Our companies have continued to grow their dividends above and beyond even my optimistic expectations. So you wanted that juice in the portfolio. You're aware of trade war. You're aware of Fed tightening. The Fed ended up being more dovish than we expected. So alternatives were another allocation there. 
from where we are right now and our waiting and alternatives a year out from now, do we want to probably have more in alternatives, same or less, Brian? Uh, I think a little more. You know, again, I mean, it's all client specific and it's all portfolio related, just like Daya said. So, you know, this is a general statement, but I would say generally speaking, we want to look where, you know, values are attractive for us, uh, where there's the right risk reward skew for clients. And I think that 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 sector does make more sense. And of course, this year we've been moving a lot in in there, but I I suspect even going through next year, it's the place to be for for even a little bit more capital. So, you know, if we were 15% before, maybe it's up to 20, something like that. Julian, you have a significant professional experience in the hedge fund world. It's where you've cut your teeth as a portfolio manager over the years in the alternative world. Uh, Look, is it easier for alternative manager to be managing in an environment when the Fed is just quantitative easing like crazy, interest rates are zero, the market's starting off at a 10 multiple and coming up to an 18? That was the environment the last 10 years. That was the environment for hedge funds. Is that the environment hedge funds like being in, or is this the environment hedge funds like being in? Currency, volatility. I'm looking at this chart right now uh, from our friends at GovCal. You've had almost no dollar volatility over the last couple of years since the Shanghai agreement early 2016. You look at the 10 years before that, significant. Isn't this higher volatility, uh, more uncertainty, deflationary issues, isn't this a better environment no, for hedge funds? Definitely, this is when uh, alternative earn their high fees because t- typically it's like it's very, it's impossible to outperform when the S&P, you know, goes up 20% every year with three percent, 5% vol, you know, then you have the S&P having a sharp ratio, which we call, which is the return divided by the volatility of the return. And it's been amazing, the, you know, since the last few years, except for maybe if you stop just before the correction last year. So nobody can beat that, but maybe this is over. And that's, you know, when you have volatility again and when over, you know, a period of one, two years, the S&P is flat, that's, you know, uh, when uh, they earn their money because they generate alpha, and they, you know, um, they, they, you know, you pay them these high fees to to be able to generate alpha regardless of the market environment. And so you would think this is a a good good, uh, environment for them. So I'm going to ask each of you to share a closing thought, and then I'll give my closing thought to wrap up our podcast um, and kind of this little uh, information session for our clients. Uh, who wants to go first? Quick 30-second closing thought on the environment we're in, trade war, China, market. I, yeah, just, I'll, I'll speak to the uh, uncertainty of it all. And going back to one of our tenets of portfolio al- allocation, we talked about the trade, for, trade war a lot. We talked about 10-year uh, it's difficult to understand how these things will play out. Like Julian said, like maybe this trade war does escalate, but because the 10-year is what it is, uh, the market, uh, we get back what we lost and we're flat you know, you know, 12 months from now. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think, I don't think anybody does. I think you need to uh, you know, discipline Trump's conviction at the end of the day, and uh, we need to have some discipline, even in this environment. It's okay to make tactical uh, calls, but at the end of the day, uh, asset allocation is uh, is what prevails. So, I think so too. I, I guess I would start off and just say it is like Dave said before. You know, it is about the portfolio. You know, that's what we're managing for. So you get you get things that come up like this, and and it's not when we're talking about tactical changes, maybe adding to alternatives. It's not because of today. It's because of where markets have moved over the last year, and just where where we see things going forward. I would say um, if 2015 was any sort of just glimpse of. Uh, how markets react when China does tend to devalue their currency, then I would say I would be prepared for short-term volatility. VIX is at 20. I think it was 30 last last time they did this. I, you know, I would say that. And then I would say, 
at the end of it all, I, I care about all that stuff. I mean, we obsess about it. We've got a table full of paper, and we read it over the weekend, and we love it all. But at the end of the day, it's all fundamentals. So fundamentals right now, we just went through every earnings call with every company that we own. Um, what, 80% were probably better than than, than expected, and, and guidance was good. And so those those are the things that we care about. It's the fundamentals that matter in the portfolio. I would just finish on on the Fed, I guess, because something extraordinary happened last week. I mean, we cut rates, and that was the first time in, what, 10 years or something? And it only happened uh, seven times, I think, since 1984. And I guess Chair Powell said it was a mid-cycle easing, and that's that's what he's hoping for. I think he doesn't have the answer. Nobody has the answer. But if he's right that it's a mid-cycle easing, then that means we're not going into recession. That means it's maybe a rough patch like we had in 2015-16, and we, we go higher from here. I, I think nobody has the answer. Even uh, the Fed doesn't have the answer either. Uh, but uh, if if that's the case, then we're going higher from here. Um, okay. So great closing thoughts, by the way. I agree with everything you guys have said. Let me let me just wrap this up for clients looking for kind of a key takeaway. Uh, investors wondering what to do. You're sitting here as we've gone on about this. The market is still down you know, over 500 points, and and that and, and I I think Brian, you're very right. Uh, VIX at 22, that's not capturing the level of volatility you really could end up with here. Uh, but I don't say that as a negative or a bearish thing. I believe for every ounce of breath in my body that enhanced volatility enhances long-term investor returns. It is nice to be able to do this out of a position of strength and essentially seven months of really strong equity market returns. You have the ability to be able to kind of uh, – Hang tight. I would not be panic buying right now any more than panic selling. I think we have some discussions to have on an individual basis of companies we were sort of opportunistically looking to add to anyways that right now might look even more attractive. But really, I'm not feeling very prone to deplete our the dry powder cash we have built up because I want to be prepared for the possibility of things even getting worse before they get better. But I do think that coming back to dividend growth, which is the gospel that we have uh, adopted at the Bonson Group, I'm sitting here looking at the positions that we hold in our portfolio. Julian referred earlier to a really strong earnings season that we had. There are some companies, mostly tech-sensitive, uh, tech industry, they're more sensitive to the China trade war. You know what you have right now? It's portfolio companies that have grown their dividend knowing we were in a trade war, knowing that the dollar had already moved up a whole lot, knowing that the easiest ploy that China had available was to weaken their own currency. And you have company operators that are extremely wise, diligent stewards of client, uh, excuse me, of company capital making long-term decisions, and through that use of capital saying we want to continue returning cash to shareholders. When a PE drops because you have a sell-off day, people lose sight of it. But I will tell you right now, a company that's down 2% today in stock price, their sales did not go down 2% over the weekend, their earnings are not going down 2%, their dividends are not going down 2%. So if we bought for the right reason, then we hold for the right reason. And I really believe that dividends reinvesting at these lower prices create long-term wealth and long-term enhanced returns. I think to the extent that the overall portfolio construction, we're getting to a point where we may have an opportunity for rebalance, not even waiting all the way till January, potentially taking a bit out of bonds earlier to add to equity as mo- and, and very likely add to alternatives. I could see that happening. We're not there yet. But ultimately, 
I would not expect that this is just going to be another sort of Trumpian trick like the Mexico deal where this thing goes away. Whatever allocation decisions are being made right now, the four guys you've been listening to here and our partner Kimberly, Robert, Trevor, Don, uh, the, the team here would say the same thing. We're not making these decisions because we have a forecast on how this trade war is going to come out. I think very few people that live in the White House have a forecast of how this whole thing's going to end. From an investment standpoint, what we do have a forecast on is the merits of asset allocation, the embedded defensiveness we've already built into client portfolios, the opportunism of dividend growth, and from a top-down level where alternatives can come in with some absolute return strategy around that. Those are the things I'd be holding on to. Specific questions, particulars along the way, please reach out to your advisor, reach out to myself as chief investment officer, reach out to our investment committee anytime. We'll answer your questions. We hope you've gotten a lot out of this. Thank you, Julian, Brian, and Dea. And we look forward to another issue of the Dividend Cafe later this week. Good job, guys. Really good. Thank you for listening to The Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor of the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance. is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team at Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.